I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. So this is actually week number eight in our series, Evidence for the Bible. This is the eighth week in the series. So we've covered a lot of ground. We've shown multiple examples of different prophecies of the Bible that have been fulfilled. Uh, testably, provably, reasonably, you can say, yeah, this really happened just like it was said. And we've answered critics' attacks on those specific arguments so that it, I think, makes a good, strong case. I think prophecy is probably the, the best apologetic for the Bible. Um, but right now we're focusing specifically on Jesus, and that's what we've been doing. Uh, just, I think, just last week and um, and two the last three weeks, including this week. So now we're going to be in Genesis 22. So if you would open your Bibles to Genesis 22, as we're looking at prophecies specifically about Jesus. In coming weeks, we're going to look at, um, while you're turning your pages there, we're going to be looking at Daniel 9. Then we're going to start looking at uh, various prophecies of Jesus, like scattered throughout. Maybe it doesn't take a whole day because it's not a whole passage. It's a smaller piece of a passage that applies to Jesus. So we'll do that as we get as we get there in the coming weeks. This is one of those passages that's absolutely confounding. Genesis 22 is where God asks Abraham to sacrifice his own son, Isaac. Now, to anyone who knows the Bible, you know the rest of the Bible, this is like a red flag goes off and you're like, what is going on? God literally forbids human sacrifice throughout the scripture, specifically, I mean, calls it murder, and then he forbids it specifically from the Israelites, says don't do this, and that's in the time of Moses, about little, well, over 400 years after the passage we're going to read about today. So here, that flag goes off, the alarm bells ring, and I think that that's because God wants to draw our attention to this passage. Very often, the, the part of the Bible where you go, wait, what? It kind of makes you like turn your head like, Wait, did I read? Wait, what's going on here? It's meant to draw your attention because there's an extra special moment happening here. And Genesis 22 is one of those moments. In the end, you'll see that this, this passage is like a 3D prophecy. It's an event that becomes a prophecy that is later fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So before we go on, we're just going to read Genesis 22. I just want to get the whole chapter into our minds and into our hearts so that now as I reference everything, it's all in context. And after all, this is a Bible study. We're here to study the Bible, not just hear what I have to say about it. And oftentimes my favorite part of Bible studies is the part where the pastor is just reading what's written on the page. So, so here's the best part of tonight coming up. Genesis 22 verse 1. <clears throat> now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham arose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham, oh, I just lost my spot. There it is. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son, on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. Then he said, look. The fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? 
And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now, I just want to highlight, that's the prophetic, that's what makes it prophecy, verse 14. He calls the name of the place the Lord not did provide, the Lord will provide. He says, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, this is the mountain he was sent to, it shall be, future tense, provided. So we'll, we'll come back to that in just a second. <clears throat> Verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed... All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they, and they rose and they went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. And that's what we'll, we'll stop. That's the section that we're going to be in tonight. <clears throat> Pardon me. So just a quick glance again at that verse 14. It says, Abraham called the name of the place after this whole event happens. The Lord will provide. That's again, that's a future tense. He calls that the name of the place. That's this location. And then it said, in the mount of the Lord, this was a mountain he had led him to. So in this particular location, some future things shall be provided. So you might go, well, what location is that? I mean, this location seems interesting. This, this was Mount Moriah. We learned earlier in the passage, Mount Moriah is modern day Jerusalem. That's the location. This is not a debatable point. This modern, modern day Jerusalem is Mount Moriah. That's where it's located. And it said that here, this is where God will provide. And then we have the it. What's the it that will be provided in this location? Well, there's no answer to this except the story of Abraham almost offering his son. And the only time the word provide is used is in reference to God providing an alternate sacrifice. So God will provide some alternate sacrifice that somehow relates to this passage and he'll do it where? In Jerusalem, the very place where Jesus was crucified. That's interesting. Now, that's not the end of it. That's just the beginning of it. At the end of it. <laughs> it's the beginning of our study of it. The parallels that are in this passage are too many and too closely related to Jesus to ignore. So we'll go through these parallels. And anyone who ignores these, I think, I think they may not be open to reason when it comes to understanding the Bible and prophecy. Only because sometimes people, what they do is to avoid believing what the scripture teaches. They just set a standard for belief that is so 
out of this world. It's up in the stratosphere, you know. And they'll only believe if, and the if is like this, uh, just almost obnoxious types of, you know, claims. You know, like an atheist I spoke to who said he'd only believe if God came down, spoke out of the clouds, and said, "Hey, I'm real." And I was like, "Well, we don't think God has a giant head up behind the clouds somewhere." I mean, this is not the same God, but it, but that beside the point. I said, if God did that, wouldn't you just think you hallucinated? And he said, yeah, probably. <laughs> and you realize that there's, the, there's an unrealistic expectation of, of, in order to believe. It's just, I set my, my, uh, my qualifications of belief so far up into the unrealistic world that I would, if I lived this way in my life, if my mom said to me, dinner's ready, I'd be like, how do I know that? And she's like, well, I'm telling you. Yeah, but how do I know that? Yeah, but you've all, well, I've always told you the truth in the past. You can smell the food. You can come here and look at the food. You know what? I don't believe that. Until I've eaten the food and felt the energy of, that it provides, I won't believe that dinner's ready. Okay, well, come over here and eat it. Well, no, I won't eat it till I believe it. And it, it just creates this sort of circular nonsense that goes on. But moving on, um, I think God is into reason and he's into us using our minds. Christianity is a reasonable faith. Jesus specifically calls people to use reason. He reasons with Pharisees. He uses careful logical arguments to try to get them to, to believe in him. If you read the New Testament, the Gospels, it's actually careful arguments he's using. Paul, as he writes, he uses careful logical arguments. Uh, Peter talks about us having the ability to offer to others. Any man who asks, what? A reason for the hope that is within us. And to offer that reason with meekness and fear. There's other passages in 1 Timothy where he's talking about reasoning with people. So the reason is on the side of Christianity. And that's the thing that many atheists I meet have a hard time believing. Because they have this deep entrenched belief that all Christians are irrational. So no matter how rational you are, they're secretly thinking, no, it's a trick. There's something irrational about you. I know there is. Because that's what college has taught me if it's the only thing I learned. (laughs) Well, let's dig in and let's reason through and see the parallels between this passage and Jesus. So Genesis 22, verse 1. Now it came to pass that after these things, that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Now the concept of uh, God testing somebody, in James 1.13, it says God does not tempt anyone, but here he's testing Abraham. There's a difference between tempting and testing. And this is true even in the, even in the Greek of that passage in James, uh, Temptation, referring to drawing me toward evil. And testing, referring to putting me through a difficult scenario so that I might show my true colors. So God does allow us to go through situations that show our true colors, but he never calls us towards evil. That would be temptation. So, But he's testing Abraham here. That's a, that's a healthy thing. This shows us what's on the inside. And in Abraham's case, it shows something wonderful. It shows a man of faith. So this is prophetic, but it's like I said, it's also devotional um, in its aspect. And I don't want to completely ignore the devotional aspects. I mean, Abraham hears God. I mean, God speaks to Abraham and he says, here I am. It's not like God is going, Abraham, like God's really nearsighted, you know, like Abraham. And he's like, here I am. This, this, this here am I or here I am phrase is, is, a, is someone saying like, yes, like I'm here. I will respond to you. I'm responding in a positive way to you calling me. I'm here to help you. It's the opposite of going, what? <laughs> right? It's the opposite of that. <laughs> so it's like the posture of obedience that Abraham has towards God, I think. It's a posture of obedience. We can be towards God like a cat or like a dog. Right? I mean, I have a cat. I love cats. I love dogs, too. I like all animals. I think cats are hilarious. You know, they, if you tell a cat to do something, it'll think about it, maybe. 
it might just pretend it doesn't hear you. <laughs> the ears like slightly goes to the side. Nah, I don't care what you say. <laughs> right? But I've had a dog who was just just the best dog in the world, right? His name is Dakota. And this dog wanted to please me. It was his goal to make me happy. If he knew something would make me happy, he would do it. It was the best dog I've ever had. And so I tell Dakota, like I had a command I gave to him not to be rude, but I just said, go away. <laughs> that was one of the commands. And he knew it meant like go like 10, 12 feet away from whoever's in the room and just chill there rather than like mobbing the guests that are in the house kind of thing, you know. So I, I Dakota, go away. And then I didn't have to put him outside. You know, I could just, he'd still be in the room. That was nice. I taught him how to do various different little things, you know. Shake. I never got him to fetch. I've never gotten a single dog to fetch. I'm horrible at that. But, but the dog is the obedient animal, and, and there's a reason why it's man's best friend. You know, then the cat is the more entertaining animal, <laughs> typically. But I want to be like the dog to God. God, if it pleases you, I want to do it. Not like the cat. Lord, tell me what you want, and I'll think about it. That's a heart of rebellion towards God, which is why some people think cats are evil. I disagree, though. I disagree. I think they give us an opportunity to have true love, to exhibit patience and kindness. So, all right, we're, we're moving on. Uh, verse 2, he says, then, then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac. Listen to the way he says it. Your son, your only son. Now, was this Abraham's only son? If you know the Bible, you know it's not. Abraham had a kid before he had Isaac named Ishmael. Ishmael was the oldest male that came, he was Abraham's firstborn, in a sense. Except it came through Hagar, and it was an ungodly way, and he defiled his marriage, and all this turmoil resulted, you know, came as a result of it. So Isaac's not his only son. Why does God call him his only son? That's interesting. This should grab you. God's obviously aware that Abraham has Ishmael. He's talked to him about Ishmael before. I think it's because of Jesus. I think Jesus is the only begotten son of God. And we're all, in a sense, offspring of God. I mean, he's created us all. We're not like his children until we come to Christ and get adopted. But Jesus, he's the only begotten son. Take now your son, your only son. Like it says in John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The only begotten of the Father. John 1.18, four verses later, it says, no eye has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father has declared him. That's Jesus. John 3.16, you may have heard this verse before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's, there's a, there seems to be a clear parallel here. Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And Isaac is referred to as the son of the promise because God promised that through Isaac, Abraham's seed would be called, or basically the blessing on Abraham. We'll get into this actually in a couple weeks about the, the seed theme through Genesis and through the rest of the scriptures. But there would be through Isaac that that promise would be fulfilled. And so he's going to take him whom he loves, whom he loves, your only son whom you love. The, 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 um, you know there's a contrast button as you're editing videos for YouTube? You can bring that contrast way up. It makes the blacks blacker and the, and the, and the whites whiter. Well, this is a contrast verse. Take your son, your only son who you love, and kill him. You know, the, the great love he has for his son and then the command to slay him, to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. A burnt offering would be an offering that is wholly consumed in fire. 
wholly consumed in fire. Wow. This grabs me, and it's totally contradictory to what God has previously told Abraham about Isaac. He said to Abraham, in Isaac your seed shall be called. All the promises of the multiple children and, and, the, and the nations and all this stuff is going to come through Isaac and through his descendants. Now go kill Isaac. The contrast is way up here. This is like, what? So Abraham's having, is he being tested? Absolutely. It's a huge test of faith. To trust God to do the thing that seems like it will undo the thing that you're hoping God will do. Talk about confusing. But Abraham knows for sure God is speaking. He's not, he's not hallucinating. He's heard from God before. It's confirmed. He knows it's really the Lord. He doesn't need pills. This is God. So, verse 3 he instantly obeys. So Abraham rose when early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. So early in the morning, he, t- he takes off. He takes off. There's a, there's a sense of now of obedient, obeying God in the now, like right away, like get to chop out, like do it now or else you'll probably die. No. My, my, my Schwarzenegger accent's not as good as it should be. <laughs> like, that was Schwarzenegger? I thought they were imitating Gandhi. I was like, yeah. Sorry. But the idea of, like, obeying now, I mean, if, if the Lord tells you something or reveals something to you, there's, there should always be a sense of urgency to it, to doing it right away, and knowing that there's, the blessing comes with, with quick obedience. And, with, and delayed obedience is something we call passive rebellion. It's like, I'm not going to say no, I'm just not going to do it. That's passive rebellion. Ask any parent how much they like that. So there's something in that for us. I mean, he, he obeyed right away. He did it now. He did it right away. And it was a three-day journey. A three-day journey. That seems significant to me. From the, from the moment Abraham sets out on the trip for this three-day journey, leaves early in the morning, takes off, for, and it's a three-day journey to get there to the mountain, Isaac was as good as dead. You know, Isaac is, okay, I've decided in my heart, I'm giving my son. God says to do this, I'm going to do it. Isaac is as good as dead from that moment. And for three days, it was, in a sense, as though his only son was dead. And for three days, Jesus was dead. And for three days, he was in the tomb from the time of the sacrifice until the resurrection. And every step he took was a step closer to that moment. Could you imagine the turmoil? To that moment when he was thinking, I'm going to have to slit his throat. Because that's what you do with the sacrifice. And then I have to set him on fire after he's dead. Brutal. Now keep in mind, God does not have him do it. And from the, from the moment God says, go and sacrifice your son, he knows I'm not going to let you go through with it. I have a plan, okay? So there are some who attack the Bible, like God called for human sacrifice. And then I just want to say like, show me one human in the Bible who was sacrificed at the command of God. There's none, right? And it's certainly not Isaac. He lives on till his old age. Because God had planned this. It's all, it's, it's all meant to draw a picture for us. Verse 5. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. That phrase, I'm going to go yonder and worship. This is the first time the word worship is used in the Bible. This is it right here. Genesis 22, verse 5. Worship. That's the first time the word is used. And here it seems to mean offering something very price, pricey or costless, I, I should say, um, to the Lord. Giving something that is just beyond value to God. Um, the Hebrew word for worship here, it means, it means to bow down. 
but of course, he means worship through sacrifice. And there's a lesson here for us in that as well, of course. But did you notice what he told them would happen after they would go yonder and worship? We will come back to you. Now, I don't think Abraham was lying. I think Abraham honestly thought him and Isaac were going to come back. But wait a minute, he's going to slay his son. But here's Abraham. He goes, all my grandkids are coming through Isaac, and I don't have any yet. God tells me to offer him as a burnt offering. God will just have to bring him back from the dead. So Hebrews, giving commentary on this passage, actually says that Abraham had concluded that God was going to raise Isaac up from the dead. So we have here a hint at the resurrection. That's pretty cool. And when you put all this stuff, if, if any one of these things would just be, oh, that's interesting. But when you put them all together as a cumulative case, and then you add that to the other prophecies we've already been sharing and the ones we have yet to share, it makes a very powerful case for the word of God, for the God of the Bible, and for Jesus as the Savior. And this is just one piece of apologetics prophecy. <laughs> we haven't even talked about other things. It's very exciting to me. Because if things are true, they're true from every angle. You know, no matter which angle you look at it from, it's like, it's true over here. Oh, it's true over here. It's true over here. So in our series here, we'll be looking at it from different angles. Um, so he says, we will come back. Again, that's not a lie. It's Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19 that actually share that. I'll read it to you. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him, in a figurative sense, because he was as good as dead. And so, in a figurative sense, he received him. So what are we looking at with Abraham? He believed. Abraham believed. What parent could raise a knife to slay their own child? Who cares anything about their child? None, not even Abraham, unless he truly believed what God had said would happen. I think that when we have genuine faith in God, it allows us to offer things to him that otherwise it would be extremely hard to give up. And we can really say, Lord, I'm going to give this to you because I trust you. He just had faith. I think in a sense, without faith, this sacrifice wasn't going to be possible. But because of faith, it wasn't nearly as hard as it seems like it should have been. Because he's like, I guess I'm going to get to see him raised up. You know, <laughs> so Not to take away the difficulty of it, but there would have been that great, incredible hope. He, and, and Abraham is the man of faith, the original man of faith of the Old Testament. The New Testament uses him as the example of faith. The example of faith. In fact, he was saved by faith, if you read about it. Because the Bible, from beginning to end, people are saved by faith. And Abraham was the first uh, one specifically mentioned as being saved that way. Being called righteous by faith. So he's God's example of faith, and I encourage you to be to be uh, aware of the fact. Like if God has showed you something, maybe it's a personal thing the Lord's revealed to you, or if it's just a truth that is clearly taught in the Bible, it's going to happen, no matter how difficult things might look, no matter how awkward things might be, it's definitely going to take place. It's just a matter of God's timing. The only question for us is, Lord, did I really hear from you? Because... The Bible says that I could have prophecies or I could have like a revelation that comes from the word of God, the Bible, clearly. I could have it from God himself. The Holy Spirit revealed this to me. But I could also have it from two other places. Did you know that? There's two other places. One is obviously Satan. I mean, Satan could, could obviously, I mean, he has his own prophets. <laughs> yes, that's true. But the other one that kind of worries me more is what's in Jeremiah. It says that they had prophecies of their own heart. 
In Jeremiah, the false prophets were prophesying from their own hearts. And they kept saying prosperity to the people of Israel. Even though God's like, prosperity is not coming. They're just deceiving you. They're prophesying lies that are coming from their own hearts. So they looked at Israel and they thought, I want Israel to do well. Oh, I want God to bless them. You know what? God's going to bless them. And so then their own desires mixed up and thinking that this is from God. This is the Holy Spirit showing me something. And so that's obviously dangerous. But if it's truly from God, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So verse 6, this picture gets even more detailed. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. So Isaac is carrying the wood. Now they're at the foot of the mountain and they're on their way up. They're going to they're hike up the mountain. And he took the fire in his hand. Because he was he he was a firebender, and so he just no no this means a torch like right he had like probably a torch or he had uh, fire building equipment but more likely they camped at the bottom of the mountain he's like wait here we'll go yonder so they probably had a fire there so he got a torch and they're walking up the mountain with it so he's got the fire in his hand and a knife and the two of them went together this I think is a wonderful picture of what Jesus did and what the father did. Abraham being the father, Isaac representing Jesus. The wood is laid on the sun and Jesus carried his cross on that same hill. And the father comes and he has a fire, which in the Bible refers to judgment. And he has a knife, which refers to death because this is the way he's going to kill him. It it was a slitting of the throat to let the blood come out. Because the blood is the thing that atones, is the idea. And so we have the knife equaling death and the spilling of blood and fire equaling judgment and the sun carrying wood up on the mountain. I mean, this is such a neat picture of what Jesus did. But then in verse 7, But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. Maybe he's getting concerned. I don't know. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? Lamb, L-A-M-B, let's remember that word, for a burnt offering. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Uh, I like the King James Version. I don't, I don't know which one's the better translation of Hebrew, but it says in the King James that uh, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering, which is very interesting. <laughs> But here he says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Um, God will provide. Remember what he names this place later? The Lord will provide. And so God will provide himself a lamb. And and Jesus, when he shows up on the scene, what does John say of him? The first thing John says is, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the lamb. And even in Revelation, he appears and John sees, hears this loud booming voice. He looks to see who's speaking and he sees a lamb as though it had been slain. And these pictures of Christ as this sacrificial lamb, we read about it in in, um, Isaiah 53, about how he was the suffering servant dying for our iniquities, bruised because of our sins, that by his stripes we are healed, that he, he took our punishment. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And this all fits like a glove, like a perfect puzzle piece, pieces just coming together. So then in verse nine, then they came to the place of which God had told him and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Now, if you do the math, 
you can't for sure know exactly how old Isaac is at this point. We tend to think of him as, as being really little, like a little boy. The word actually used, uh, sometimes translated lad or something like that, it's, it's actually a word more typically used of someone who's a little bit older. So a teenager, maybe even in his 20s. I know one commentary that said, for sure, he's 33 years old at this point. I don't know how they got to that number, so I can't endorse that. But based on the last few chapters of Genesis and knowing when he was born versus how old his mother is and the things that transpired, it's reasonable to think that he was at least a young adult, like at least a young man, not a child. So here he is, and his father is definitely up in age. Dad is like up in age at this point in time. And so the son... I think it's reasonable to say he allowed his father to bind him and put him on the altar. He let this happen. He could have fought it. There's no struggling or wrestling. There's no battle going on here that we notice. So he allows this to happen, which seems to me very intense. Very intense. I think the picture here is of the son in submission to the father. The father ready to make the sacrifice and the son choosing willfully to then say, okay, that's your plan. Okay, I'll be the sacrifice which is exactly what we see painted in the New Testament as Jesus goes forward willingly. He says, no man takes my life, I lay it down willingly. Verse 10, and Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the, the, the drama builds. You know, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad. That's that word lad that probably refers to one who's uh, more of a young adult age. Or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So there's kind of like this dramatic pause. Like this is the moment where it's like freeze frame. You know, <laughs> like the dramatic pause as the knife is raised. He's preparing with the knife. He's like, everything's in place and I'm about to do it. And God says, stop. Absolutely stop. The father is going to give his son to sacrifice, to judge, to kill this is, this is the idea. He's going to offer, right? But then there's a pause. Wait. Don't hurt them. And this is actually, if you read the text, this angel of the Lord is a mysterious character in the Old Testament who is, I think, a picture, of, not just a picture, but an appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Notice this. Verse 11. The angel of the Lord called. An angel means messenger. It doesn't just mean a type of being. It's also a, a, an errand that you're on. I'm, a, I'm an angel. I'm a messenger. Called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Speaking in the third person of God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. But previously it was God who spoke to Abraham, saying, offer to me your son. And so we have this mixture of this this. this individual saying, you know, you fear God because you haven't withheld from me. And there's other, in fact, every appearance of that phrase, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament seems to be a theophany or a, a, an appearance of God, uh, an appearance of Christ, I think. So that's a whole other study. But just, just to get you launched, when you see that phrase, then read the words carefully around it and you'll see it. You'll see the mixture of God as third person and first person. It's really neat. So, yes, this is, um, this is, I believe, a picture of God offering his son. And the picture, now that the picture's been painted, now that everything's drawn out, the very hill it will happen on, walking with the wood on his back, then being offered willingly with the father being the one judging. And then he's like, okay, pause. The picture's been painted. Now stop. And then he tells him, 
Verse 13. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And so he turns and he sees, and he's like, oh, God provided something else for me. And he takes the ram and he offers it instead. There's been this substitution. It's substitution. We see the father offering his son. We see all those things, but there's no reasoning behind it. Why, God? Why am I giving my son? What will this accomplish? I mean, Isaac's not going to pay for the sin of the world. So pause. There's a substitute. And for every one of us who comes to Christ, there's been a substitute. We call it, in our doctrine, we call it substitutionary atonement. We talked about it last time. Jesus is our substitute. Standing in our place and taking the punishment for our sins so that we can be taken off the altar and the judgment falls upon him instead of on us. But what's interesting to me, why is it that he said God will provide... A, a lamb, but then a ram shows up. That's interesting, isn't it? God's going to provide a lamb, but then a ram shows up. Because the lamb isn't here yet. The lamb is Jesus. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What? The lamb that God said he would provide. I think that's a reasonable way to look at the passage. He lifted up his eyes and he saw this ram and would have been utterly relieved. Utterly relieved. Oh, all right, let's get you off that altar, son. Oh, this is what God had planned all along. Okay, this is, boy, there, this must be important for God to ask me to go through all this stuff. There must be something here, just like, uh, just like we've been looking at in prophecy. So verse 14, and Abraham called the name of the place. Here's the prophetic aspect. The Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh, that's the, uh, that's the term. God, our provider. God will provide. The Lord will provide. God is going to, future tense, provide. As it is said to this day. Now this is then um, Moses writing this Pentateuch. So we're looking over 400 years later. Moses is writing and he goes, just like we still say today. In the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. It was carried down to them, even to that point, as a future-looking prophetic idea. God is not God will provide anything and everything. I mean, as sometimes I think Jehovah Jireh, like, Lord, I need a hamburger. I mean, obviously, that's not necessarily the provision. But it's specifically the ultimate, the ultimate provision that he gives us, which is Jesus Christ. In fact... This chapter only mentions the word provide one other time, and that's when Abraham speaks of the lamb that God will provide for a sacrifice. Verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Notice this. <clears throat> the angel of the Lord, again, swearing by myself and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord. Because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants. So he's going to have lots and lots of children and grandkids and great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids. And millions and millions of, of, of Jewish people have come from, uh, from Abraham. They'll multiply them as the, as, the, as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. Now this doesn't mean there will be exactly as many Israelites as there are grains of sand on the sea. Rather, you can't count them. Like you can't, like how many Jews have there been throughout history? Like nobody knows. We could just have a guess, but there's just a lot. Okay. Millions and millions and millions and millions. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And then 
verse 18, we'll connect with this later when we look at the prophecies of the seed. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. Um, this, I think, is a direct prophecy of Jesus because we'll get there later, but Genesis uh, chapter 3 has the very first messianic prophecy, and it refers to the seed crushing the serpent's head after the, after the, the curse. And so in your seed, that seed is being narrowed down. Oh, Abraham, it'll be in your seed. It'll be from your descendants, not all of, all of Eve, but now your descendants. And it'll get narrowed down further and narrowed down further until we finally get to Jesus uh, ultimately being the only one that could fit all of these requirements for the Messiah. It's really neat stuff. What a masterpiece. I'm personally in awe of, of this. I mean, God did, think about this, God did the thing he didn't let Abraham do in Genesis 22. He slew his son that we might have life. He didn't let Abraham do it, but he fulfilled it. He actually went through with it. The son willingly offering himself for our sins. And then finally, verse 19, So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. And the last thing I want to say for tonight, and then we'll we'll do some Q&A and stuff like that, but is this. This is a cumulative case. And what I'm doing is I'm taking various different prophecies in various different passages. I don't know that I would take Genesis 22 and say this standalone 100% proves the Bible in all of its ways. But when you combine it with the other prophecies we're talking about, we looked at Daniel, we looked at Ezekiel, we've looked at um, uh, Genesis uh, chapter 5, we looked at Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and you look at all these things and you go, that's just too much. It's just too much. It's too much of a cumulative case to say, how can this not be God? And I don't know. I don't have an explanation other than God. I don't know of a reasonable explanation other than God for all these things. And we've just gotten started because there's a lot more. And I'm not going to exhaustively do every messianic prophecy because this isn't just a prophecy series. It's an evidence for the Bible series. So we're going to move from this on in a, a two, three more studies, and then we'll be moving on to another topic. Um, but uh, but it, it's just, it just blows me away. So every once in a while, I want you to take a step back and just go, let me think about all that we've done Sunday nights over these past like eight or 10 or 50, however many weeks it takes, you know, 772 weeks. And they just go, wow, God. Wow. Just wow. Yeah. Let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you for your holy word that is proven time and again, but yet... It seems as though it needs to be proven again and again to each generation. And so we pray that for this generation, we would carry the information of the truth of your word to the people around us. Whoever our arms can reach, whoever our mouths and our words can affect, we pray, Lord, that we could bring them to Christ through the knowledge of the truth of the scriptures. And we ask that you'd let us be ambassadors for Christ. And we pray, Lord, for... um, for this series that we, as we continue, you give us wisdom, you give us insight, Lord, and may we have everything we do founded on truth and founded on rationality because you are true and you are rational, Lord. May you let this be a light as this video gets up on uh, YouTube and goes wherever it goes. May it be a light. May it get just to the right people at the right time. We ask that your spirit would guide and lead. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your holy word, and we thank you more than anything that you did the thing that you didn't let Abraham do, and you gave your son your only begotten, whom you love for us sinners who were estranged from you, that we might know grace and forgiveness because of your love for us. 
We are so grateful, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.